Well, good evening uh, once again. Uh, tonight, as you can see on the note sheet, we're back in Colossians, uh, finishing up chapter 2 tonight with verses 16 through 23, after which we will be uh, two out of four chapters through. Uh, and I'll note again, once again, I'll be uh, using the New American Standard tonight. And to quickly review, since it's been a while, um, we saw several weeks ago uh, that Paul's goal in verses 124 through 25 was to present all Christians mature or complete in Christ. And then that goal was the basis of Paul's command in chapter 2, verse 6, to continue to walk in Christ, to live in Christ alone and not by any other belief system. With that in mind, the therefore at the beginning of this passage indicates that Paul is still primarily concerned with living only on the basis of Christ. So this passage will continue that theme. So with that said, hear now God's word to you tonight from Colossians 2, 16 through 23. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food and drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Take care that no one keeps defrauding you of your prize by delighting in humility and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding firmly to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees, such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of man? These are matters which do have the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and humility and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So far, God's word. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help tonight. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word, which we confess and believe has been inspired by your spirit. Help us to regard it as such, to clear our minds and focus upon it as we hear it announced to us now. We pray that we would be convicted of sin, yet also hear the good news about Jesus and what he has done for us. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, from the early to mid-80s, just a little statistics, uh, the amount of people addicted to cocaine and other hard drugs increased by the millions. This was a, a problem plaguing our nation at that time. Emergency rooms were filled with patients uh, who suffered from drug-related injuries, and low-income neighborhoods were devastated by the use and the sale of these substances. In response, President Reagan launched his uh, so-called War on Drugs, and the First Lady, Nancy Reagan, began her Just Say No campaign in 1982, encouraging any child who was faced with the choice of using drugs to just say no. Since that time, many have debated the merits of those programs, and it's not, I'm not here to take one side or the other, but I think we can all admit that using drugs is a bad idea. We should just say no to drugs. They produce anxiety, depression, heart disease, brain damage. The list could go on. But that's not what I'm here to talk about tonight. But in our passage, Paul also encourages his believers, or the believers he's writing to, to just say no. 
But in this case, they're not to say no to hard drugs, but to rules and regulations that aren't in accord with Christ. Essentially, his main point in these verses is that the Colossians should not submit to needless laws or extraordinary practices in order to experience the fullness of God's presence. Instead, they only need to continue looking to Christ in faith. So we're going to look at this passage in three points based on the three things Paul says not to do. First, don't be judged, verses 16 and 17. Second, don't be defrauded, that's verses 18 and 19. And third, don't submit, verses 20 through 23. So we'll start with Paul's command in verse 16. He says this, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food and drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Well, as I've already noted, this therefore refers us back to the last passage we talked about and the central idea that Christian living is to be based only on Christ. With that in mind, Paul says that the Colossians should not let anyone put them on trial, so to speak, and condemn them on the basis of these things he brings up. But we'll get to those in a second. Why should they let this Why shouldn't they let these trials happen? Well, we have to think back to our discussion of Colossians 2, 11, and 12. We talked about the fact that Christ's crucifixion was a judgment event. Paul brought that out through his discussion of circumcision and baptism, which are also judgment events. And he said that the Colossians were judged as Christ was judged on the cross. So in that sense, human judgment means nothing. Additionally, because their judgment took place in Christ, they have been reconciled with God, and they have begun to experience the fullness of his presence. So Paul's point is this, the Colossians don't need anything besides Christ to receive God's blessing. Obeying the kinds of extraneous laws Paul is about to give examples of will not benefit them in any way. They have already been judged in Christ and declared righteous. And we can see here, looking at the two examples Paul gives, these are both references to Mosaic laws that were specifically temple-related. Here we have to keep in mind that the Jewish mystics, once again, their goal was to ascend in the Spirit to to God's heavenly temple, not to the earthly temple, but to the heavenly temple. So in their minds, if obedience to these laws was necessary for the earthly temple— A really strict obedience to these laws was necessary to make it to the heavenly temple. That's their goal. But first, Paul says, don't be judged in regard to food and drink. This is a reference to the dietary laws of the Sinai Covenant. One example of this would be Leviticus 20, 25 through 26. You are to distinguish the clean animal from the unclean one and the unclean bird from the clean one. Do not become contaminated by any land animal, bird, or whatever crawls on the ground. I have set these apart as unclean for you. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be mine. Well, the next question we could ask uh, is why was this cleanness and uncleanness so important? What were the consequences of being considered unclean? Why was it important to remain pure? Well, we could flip a few chapters back in Leviticus to chapter 15, verse 31, which says, uh, here God is talking about 
uh, other unclean people and how the Israelites shouldn't come in contact with them. He says, you shall keep the Israelites from their uncleanness, speaking of the people who are already unclean, so that they do not die by defiling my tabernacle that is among them. So any uncleanness, even what we could call secondhand uncleanness, disqualified an Israelite from coming near to God's presence in the context of the tabernacle or the temple. And they could die for violating these laws. Again, we could ask the question, why was this such a serious thing? To avoid certain types of animals, to avoid touching them even. Because they would be defiling the holy and righteous presence of God by their impurity. This idea of ritual impurity regarding the temple was a picture It preached the fact that God requires perfection of those with whom he dwells. And that's always been true. The requirement to enter eternal communion with God is absolute righteousness, perfect righteousness. That's bad news because we're sinners. We talked about that this morning. We've all inherited Adam's sin, original sin. But the good news is that perfect righteousness has been given to us who have faith in Jesus. It comes to us from outside ourselves. His perfection and his holiness and his merit have been credited to our account. Therefore, we are able to share in eternal blessedness in the special presence of God, not because we've kept the dietary laws of the Sinai covenant, as the false teachers were saying was necessary, but because Christ kept all of God's laws flawlessly. Well, the second type of law Paul addresses in verse 16 is the Sabbath system. He says that the Colossians should not let anyone judge them in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. And you'll notice Paul here is not just announcing, uh, he's not just talking about the weekly seventh day Sabbath, but he's talking about the whole sabbatical system, which included these monthly and yearly festivals and new moons. So we should understand Paul's words here in terms of how the Sabbath was observed uniquely in the unique context of theocratic Israel. So with that in mind, the question for us is, is Paul's point that the new covenant community is no longer mandated to observe the Sabbath? Yes and no. Uh, First, yes, in the sense that Israel's Sabbath was a picture. It was a signpost that pointed to Christ. Certain laws of Moses, including circumcision, which we talked about in the last passage, dietary laws, Sabbaths, and others, are no longer necessary because they've accomplished their redemptive historical purpose. They preached Christ to the Old Testament saints. But now Christ has come, and he's he's finished his work and fulfilled those laws. They've served their purpose. But we must also answer no. There is still a sense in which the new covenant community is mandated to observe the Sabbath. Why? Because even though the unique ways in which Israel kept the Sabbath were fulfilled in Christ, the creational aspects of the Sabbath implied in Genesis 2 have not ceased. They predated Moses and Israel, and they continue on after. So we have to ask the question for the sake of clarity, and so we know how to proceed as new covenant believers What are the elements of this perpetual creational Sabbath ordinance? Well, the best place to start is by going to the source, reading Genesis 2, 2 through 3. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. 
So as we know, and as Pastor Danny brought out a couple weeks ago, God's rest on the seventh day was not absolute. That's, that would have been disastrous for the creation. Instead, it was just the end of his creative work. And at the end of that work, God sat and rested, so to speak, on his throne as the king over everything that he had made. So God's resting on the seventh day is best understood as God enjoying his sovereign rule over everything he had created. We also read there in Genesis 2 that God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy. He did this in order that his people would remember and honor his Sabbath rest, his kingship over his creation. Before the Mosaic era, God's people would commemorate their Lord's Sabbath enthronement through various acts of worship, building altars, offering sacrifices of thanks, bowing in prayer. That's how they kept the Sabbath, so to speak, before the Sinai Covenant, by worshiping God. So for us, people who live after the Sinai Covenant, on the other side of the coming life, death, resurrection of Christ, we have even more reason to worship. We commemorate God the Father's kingly rule over creation, yes, and we commemorate God the Son's achievement of salvation, accomplishing the forgiveness of our sins and our justification and all other spiritual blessings. And we do this just as God's covenant people have always done, through commemorative acts of worship, in our case, at the assembling of the saints on Sundays. So in sum, the national aspects of Israel's laws, including the way the Sabbath was kept and on which day it was kept, do not continue into the new covenant. For example, Exodus 35.2 says, For six days work is to be done, but on the seventh day you are to have a holy day, a Sabbath of complete rest to the Lord. Anyone who does work on it must be executed. For example, that does not continue into the new covenant. Instead, Sabbath keeping in, in the church is the gathering of the saints together for worship on the first day of the week. And this weekly worship commemorates Christ's winning for us a share in God's ultimate Sabbath rest, his seventh day rest, and looks forward to the day when we will enter into that fully in the new heavens and earth. To that end, we gather on the Lord's day to worship our triune God, again, looking ahead to the greater worship to come in the new creation. By doing what we did this morning and by doing what we're doing now, we keep the Sabbath. We maintain the creational pattern of one day in seven set apart to God as a day of worship to our King. So what is Paul's point in bringing up these two examples, the dietary laws and the Sabbath laws? Again, the false teachers were trying to tell the Colossian church that keeping these laws was a necessary part of spiritual fulfillment, and it was the path to uh, a special experience of the presence of God. And part of that would have been keeping the food and Sabbath laws. But Paul, earlier in the letter, as we've talked about, has already indicated to the Colossians that they've been united to Christ, who is the true temple of God. So they should ignore these rules. They already have access to God through Jesus Christ. They don't have to keep these laws. There's no point to them anymore. And in verse 17, Paul explains why that's true. He says those laws are things which are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So why shouldn't the Colossians allow themselves to be judged, to be condemned by others uh, according to the laws mentioned in verse 16? 
Paul says it's because they're shadows, and as shadows, they've dissolved in the light of Christ's coming. The substance, Paul says, belongs to Christ. So kids, think about your shadow. Have you ever made like shadow puppets and like done little ostriches and birds and rabbits and stuff on the wall? So you get a light, you hold up your hand or part of your body to it, and the light shines and casts this dark outline on the wall or the ground or wherever, and that outline is called your shadow. And it sort of looks like you. Uh, If your parents were to see your shadow around the corner, they would assume that you're around the corner because you're the one casting the shadow. So in Paul's metaphor, Jesus is the one casting the shadow. He's the substance, and the shadows both come from him and lead to him. So Paul's point is that these Old Testament ceremonial laws can be discarded now because the one who has cast the shadow of them has arrived. But we have to ask the question, how exactly did the dietary and Sabbath regulations find fulfillment in Christ? How has he fulfilled them? Well, as we've said, these were laws that had to do with ritual purity, whether or not you were allowed to enter into the temple or the tabernacle and participate in the worship of God's people. But now Christ is the one who purifies his people in order for them to come into God's presence in praise. So no purification laws are needed. Only Christ, through faith, is our purification. So the laws of the old temple system are irrelevant to us. In fact, once again, Paul says they're shadows which have dissolved in the light of Christ's coming. Well, now moving on to verse 18, we move into our second point. And the second thing Paul says not to do, don't be defrauded. Verse 18 says, take care that no one keeps defrauding you of your prize by delighting in humility and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen. Now, this verse is... Uh, it really builds on verse 16. Paul's listing two more things that the false teachers were promoting wrongly, namely delighting in humility and the worship of angels. But Paul is telling the Colossians, don't let anyone draw your attention away from Christ through these means. Ignore them. Live your life only according to Jesus. On the other hand, the false teachers were coming in to the Colossian congregation and telling them that if they didn't follow these practices, they were missing out. They would not receive the prize of God's presence unless they followed what the false teachers were saying. You're disqualified if you don't follow our rules, the false teachers said. At best, you would be considered a junior varsity player. But Paul highlights the fact, uh, first, that they were delighting in humility. That's the first practice he calls out. And this sounds like a good thing. I mean, uh, humility is a virtue. It's something we want to develop in ourselves. We want to be humble. But Paul's not referring to the good kind of humility. This word in this context points to the idea of false humility and asceticism, a sort of self-imposed self-denial that really ends up making the person think more about themselves than less. So it has the reverse effect of real humility. And they were pursuing this false humility for the sake of the worship of angels. Now, there are books written about this phrase. Um, But humbly, as I've already brought up, I submit to you that this phrase doesn't mean the Jewish mystics were trying to worship angels. If that were the case, I think Paul would have condemned them much more directly and harshly along the lines of what we see in Revelation 22, when John falls down in worship before the angel and the angel rebukes him. 
says worship God. Instead, Paul knows, as I've brought up many times throughout this series, that the Jewish mystics wanted to witness the way the angels worshipped God in heaven. That was the visionary experience they sought. And for those who claimed that they had had those experiences, they would not only delight in these visions, Paul says, but they would also take their stand on them, meaning they would go into great detail. They would talk on and on about the things they had seen, about what happened to them and what they had done as they were guided up through the various levels of heaven. And naturally, this would lead them to a place of arrogance. This is a special experience. Of course, if I've done this, I've got to be better than the rest of you. But Paul says that they were inflated by a fleshly mind without cause. So his major concern with the false teachers is that they were puffed up with pride. And because they were puffed up with pride, they were not holding firmly to the head. Now, this is clearly a reference to Christ. Paul's already called Christ the head twice in this epistle. So in other words, they were holding on to their man-made religion and to the Old Testament shadowy regulations rather than holding on to Christ. And Paul brings out the consequences of this mistake. He says that anyone who doesn't hold firmly to the head doesn't grow. Because from the head, the entire body grows with the growth from God, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments. In other words, it's only as the church is united to Christ that it will grow. We depend on him entirely for any and all nourishment and growth. So Paul is using this physiological metaphor of head and body, joints and ligaments, to appeal once again to the sufficiency of Christ. It all comes back to his exhortation to walk only in Jesus, continue walking in him. Notice also how Paul points out the ironic results of the Jewish mystical system. Humility was resulting in boasting. Ascetic practices, ostensibly meant to humble a person, were resulting in pride, and the quest for heavenly worship really only amounted to worship of self. The false teaching facing the church in Colossae, as Paul said earlier, was nothing but empty deceit. And if the Colossians were to follow them on that path of obedience to shadowy Old Testament laws and asceticism and mystical experiences, they would be placing themselves back on the road to slavery. They would be undermining the victory accomplished by Christ at the cross. And Paul does not want that to happen. Finally, in verses 20 through 23, Paul says, do not submit. He asks the rhetorical question, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why do you submit yourselves to decrees? Again, this is just a logical construction. So Paul's if basically amounts to him saying, since it is the case that you have died with Christ. Remember, that's what he was explaining in verses 11 and 12 of this chapter. And what if they died to Christ? What if they died with Christ to? Well, to the elementary principles of the world. And you'll recall last time as well, we talked about how this term is a reference to the works principle. Do this and live. Work for your reward. Earn something from God. But friends, when we come to faith in Christ, we die to every precept of the world that tries to earn something from God. We recognize and believe and confess and thank God for the fact that Christ has earned everything for us because we know we could not do it ourselves. 
So we cannot let anyone lay the heavy yoke of the works principle back on us as if we were still in a covenant of works. Christ has made us free. We are recipients of grace and we are members of the covenant of grace. Paul goes on to list another reason they shouldn't submit to the decrees when he writes, as if you were living in the world. Now, Paul's not saying that the Colossians should be escapists, that they should go move somewhere else where no one's really there. They can build their own community. They can be isolated from the world. He's also not saying uh, some sort of proto-Gnostic thing that they should deny their physical bodies or their their physicality in some way. Instead, he's arguing for the freedom that comes with being a member of the age to come, the new world. He's reminding the Colossians yet again that they do not operate by the same rule book the old world, the sinful world, operates by. They've died to that world and been born again into a new one. So for Paul to follow a set of expired laws or to follow man-made regulations is to submit once again to the works principle that is characteristic of the old creation. And that would amount to rejecting Christ and the facts that he has kept the law for us and that he has made us citizens of a new creation. With those two reasons in mind, Paul asks the rhetorical question, why do you submit yourselves to decrees? Bottom line is this, because they have died with Christ and risen with him to new life in a new creation, under a new principle of grace, the Colossians are not to submit to expired old covenant laws or man-made religious practices. Paul goes on in verse 21 to bring up, again, the example of the Old Testament dietary laws. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Even handling or touching an unclean thing would make a person ritually impure. Deuteronomy 14.8 says, And pigs, though they have hooves, they do not chew the cud. They are unclean for you. Do not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. And as we've seen already, the consequences of being ritually unclean were that a person was unfit to commune with God, to enter or come near his presence. Now, we've already seen earlier in the passage one reason Paul has said that these dietary laws should be ignored, uh, because they are mere shadows and Christ, who is the substance, has come. But in the last couple verses of our passage, Paul gives further reason why these legalistic decrees are to be rejected. In verse 22, he says that all of them refer to things destined to perish with use. Now, these ceremonial laws were definitely appropriate, even necessary under the Sinai covenant. But now in the era of the new covenant, they've perished. And there is a new spiritual temple who is Christ, which we are a part of and which can never perish. So any attempt to return to Israel's temple which is destined to perish with all of its regulations, is futile. That whole system, including the dietary laws, circumcision, the Sabbath laws, all useless now for drawing near to God. And if anyone tries to make these laws binding upon Christians, as the false teachers were doing, they're promoting a dead religion. They're propping up the shadow over the substance, which amounts to idolatry. Paul goes on to say these decrees are in accordance with the commandments and teachings of man. This reminds us of verse 8, where Paul said that the false teaching was according to human tradition, not according to Christ. It's clear that Paul considers the Jewish mystical system, what they were teaching, to find its origin in sinful man rather than holy God. But let's stop and think for 
a minute about the magnitude of what Paul's saying. It's easy to see how the ascetic practices are man-made. But here Paul is saying that the food laws legitimately given by God in their proper context and for their proper purpose are now considered man-made and idolatrous. And this is because the Colossians lived and we live in the age of fulfillment. So if they were to go back to the shadows to substitute those for the reality of the substance, if they were to trade Christ for Sinai's ceremonial laws, they would be committing idolatry. Because idolatry essentially is false worship. Even if it's directed to the true God, if it's done in the wrong way, it is idolatrous and sinful. So as a new covenant believer, to place your trust in the old covenant system of purification rather than in Christ to purify you is to worship an idol. It's misplaced trust and it is idolatry. In verse 23, Paul goes on to say that although these decrees are firmly to be rejected, these are matters which do have the appearance of wisdom. So to the natural mind, keeping the regulations the Jewish mystics were teaching may seem like a good idea. It might seem like a wise thing to do. And Paul brings out three reasons why that might be the case. First, they are self-made religion, basically meaning that their religion was a do-it-yourself religion. But, therefore, it's necessarily full of man's wisdom, which, as Paul says in another letter, amounts to folly in God's sight. The second thing about the decrees is that they promote humility. Again, not the good kind of humility. This is asceticism, which we know, as Paul couples it with the next phrase, severe treatment of the body. So these rules would include fasting for long periods of time, depriving yourself from sleep, all with the idea that you could deny your physical body long enough to the point that your spirit could escape and travel up into heaven and make its ascent to see the angels worshiping God. But again, Paul points out the irony here by saying that these regulations that are focused on the physical, largely, are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So they may be denying the physical body, but they're feeding the sinful flesh. Paul says that although they claim that their decrees and regulations lead them to spiritual fulfillment, to experience God in a special way, they really cannot get to God's presence through these methods. Their decrees are according to the elementary principles of the world, which is destined to perish, and they only serve to indulge the sinful flesh. As one writer puts it, the fact remains that all precepts, all doctrines, all schemes, all methods, all works that aim at merit in man take away merit from Christ and must result in failure. So what have we seen in our passage tonight? Well, it's a lot of Paul saying, don't. Don't be judged according to expired, fulfilled, shadowy laws of the Sinai covenant, namely the food and Sabbath laws. He's also told the Colossians not to be defrauded of their prize by being carried off track by false teachers, joining this mystical quest to experience God by escaping the physical world. Paul says that won't gain you anything. In fact, you'll lose out on the prize. That's how you would disqualify yourself. The only way to God is Christ, and Paul is making sure that they continue to believe that and practice that. And third, Paul said, don't submit, reminding the Colossians that they've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the old sin-corrupted world. He encourages them to walk instead in grace, in Christ, 
rather than in man-made false teaching. Now, in seeking to apply this passage, it seems to me that Paul's exhortations don't need much alteration. We also need to hear the commands, don't let anyone judge you for not following the ceremonial laws. Don't be defrauded of your heavenly prize by by being enticed to walk along any other path than faith in Christ. And don't submit to the works principle. Do not try to earn heaven for yourself. So those are the things not to do. But what's the proper alternative? What should we pursue instead as people chosen and redeemed and set free by Jesus? I would suggest the answer is a stubborn Christ-centeredness. And I'll confess, part of me is hesitant to return to that point. I feel like I'm repeating myself every week. But for Paul, this Christ-centered emphasis shows that he is unashamed to repetitively draw his hearers' attention to the gospel. In this passage, just like in the previous one, the significance of Christ's death and resurrection is central. This gospel thread ties everything together and provides the answers to the problems that were facing the Colossian church. All of Paul's don'ts are rooted in the gospel message that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the types and shadows, that he's kept the law perfectly on our behalf and secured the inheritance of heaven for us. But friends, the reality is this. We fall all too easily into what the Jewish mystical teachers were doing as well. We not only need to hear Paul's words to the Colossians, we need to be reminded of the implicit words to the Jewish mystical teachers. We fall all too easily into legalism and self-righteousness and judgment. We judge our brothers and sisters for things that we do differently in our Christian lives, of course thinking that the things that we do are better than what they do. We like to build ourselves up through keeping rules that we made up so that we can look down on our brothers and sisters. We can also, like the false teachers, fall into mysticism or asceticism. This is something I think we've largely inherited from the American Christian culture. We want an immediate immediate encounter with God, just us and him. We want to reach the next level in our relationship with him, to go deeper, to climb higher, to enter further into his presence, whatever those things mean. To do that, we may embrace practices or disciplines such as fasting, solitude, spiritual retreats, long study sessions, rather than the means of grace the Lord has given us in his word. And these things can cause us to foster a proud, elitist attitude, thinking that we are making ourselves more holy, than our brothers and sisters, when in reality we're serving ourselves and not God. The answer to all of this, again, is the continual continual realization of God's grace in Christ, that he has fulfilled the law for us, that he is our access to God's presence and the gift of the Holy Spirit, that he meets with us in worship through the ordinary means of his word read and proclaimed and through the sacraments. We don't need to seek that out on our own by coming up with five spiritual steps to a deeper walk with God. Paul has showed the Colossians time and time again, it's all about the life and death of Jesus Christ, what he has done for us, and that they share in that, and we share in that, and that benefits us in incredible ways. So let's continue to walk only in him, realizing that his gospel affects every part of our new creation lives, including our freedom from the shadows and shackles of man-made religion. And thank God that it does. Let's pray. 
Oh God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, our great Redeemer and the substance of every shadow. Thank you for making us free through his law-keeping and sacrifice that we, and we ask that you would help us guard that freedom, knowing that no one can disqualify us because you yourself have qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Let us not be judged or judge others wrongly. Let us not submit or ask others to submit to outdated or man-made regulations. But Father, let us walk only in Christ, the one who has paid the price to set us free, in true humility and gratitude, seeking to bring glory to you and good to our neighbors. In the name of our great high priest in heaven, Jesus Christ the righteous. Amen.